morning, everyone. It is so good to see you guys. It's so good to see you guys online. And I want to go a chance and just, we're going to get a chance to dig a little deeper into the text today. Last week, Pastor Philip introduced the book of Jude and, and how we are to contend for the faith and, and the idea of what it means to get in good trouble. But what we're going to do today is dig a little deeper into saying, what does that mean? And so before we get into today's text and, and the rest of this message, let's, let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that this, this time right here, God, that you will prepare our hearts and our minds to hear from you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you will move me out of the way, God, that you will fill me with your Holy Spirit, that our hearts and our minds are prepared, and that in this, in this moment, God, that our lives will be transformed to look more like you for your glory, Lord, that, that we could be a light, Lord, to, to show the world how good you are and who you are as Lord and King. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, the one in whom we place our trust. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as a little kid, um, I used to hear stories or fables. You know, fables are, are stories that have a meaning with a, a moral to the story. And, and also during those times, and I'm going to date myself a little bit, fairy tale theater. This is back in the, in the 80s, and I was a, an early 80s, and I was a little kid, and they'd have these shows on VHS. And then you put them in, and you'd watch the story of these fables. And one particular story that I would never think that I would ever use as an illustration to preach on, but it was appropriate for today, is the story of Little Red Riding Hood. How many of us have heard that story or reminded of that story? If, if you're not aware of that story, I don't even know if my kids are aware of that story. That's a shame on me as a parent. They're teenagers now, but... So they're not going to be interested in this. But the story of Little Red Riding Hood is a story of a little girl who goes by herself into the woods to visit her grandmother who is sick. But instead of seeing her grandmother when she gets there, she sees or comes in contact with the big bad wolf. This big bad wolf came to the house, ate her grandmother, and disguised himself up as her. He was put on one of her nightgowns and laid in her bed. And when Little Red Riding Hood comes, he is there pretending to be her grandmother. And it is in this story that you hear Little Red Riding Hood say as she comes in contact with the wolf who she thinks is her grandmother, why, what big eyes you have, and what big nose you have, and what big teeth you have, and how furry you are. And all the while, the wolf is laying there waiting for the opportunity to eat her too. Now, there are many variations to this tale. There are very variations to this fable, but in all the variations, Little Red Riding Hood escapes. And we get to the moral of the story. The moral is that people are not always what they seem. And that children shouldn't talk to strangers. It tends to be that the wolves, the, the nice wolf, ends up being the worst ones in the end. And it's interesting that this story has been going around for centuries. At one time in Italy, it was known as the story of the false grandmother. But regardless of the story, what we see here is the tale of a predator. Unlike Little Red Riding Hood that gives this warning in the form of a fable, Jude here writes a clear and explicit warning that a wolf is in the house. We see the, the, the tale here instead of the story of the false grandmother, the story of the false brother or the false sister. 
a wolf that has infiltrated the house, and this house is the family of faith. See, Jude is presenting a case of what these false brothers or sisters or predators look like and what it is in the judgment that awaits them. You see, we have to understand here as we're looking at this text and we go back to Jude 3, talk about contending for the faith. And, and what I want us to understand as we look at a predator and look at the judgment of the predator, that this is not about the idea of, of contending against culture. This is not about the culture wars. This is not uh, talking about this. It is actually dealing with the enemy within the house. In this passage, there are really two things we're going to look at, and, and we're going to look at from a sandwich approach, but there are two, there are two uh, things that we want to look at. We want to look at first the judgment on a predator, God's judgment on a predator, and then we're going to look at the ways of a predator. But we'll conclude it as we talk about that sandwich with the judgment of the predator again, or the fate of the predator. And so the first and the third points are the same. But going to the judgment of the prayer, the first part, we'll be reading Jude verses 5 through 7. And the text says this, Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept them in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So notice here, as we look at this text, notice here that Jude begins with the words, now I want to remind you. That he is actually talking to the readers, taking the readers back to a day or back to a time of something that they already know or already aware of. He's talking about going back to the Old Testament uh, examples of God's judgment. He takes them back to unbelieving Israel. Now, here's something that's interesting as we look at this text. And I remember when I read this, it just blew my mind because I was like, wow, Jude drops a dime here. He says here that it talks about Israel being rescued by the Lord. But notice how Jude connects the deliverer Israel in Exodus as Jesus. That he is dropping the point that the Lord who delivered Israel from Egypt was Jesus. But then he also talks about their unfaithfulness. This is where the judgment comes from, punishing Israel. If you, if you remember the story in Exodus and you remember the journey of Israel through the wilderness, they worshipped a golden calf. And then when it came time to go to the promised land, they, this is the land that God had promised them that in their unbelief, they rejected what God had given them in their unbelief and in their fear. And they were judged for that, that a whole generation died because of their unfaithfulness. But not only that, Jude also goes into Genesis 6. He takes them back to Genesis 6, dealing with the rebellious angels, dealing about the sons of God. He also takes them back to Jude to see that these angels who rebelled against the authority of God, he takes them back to that point, but then he also takes them back to Genesis again, to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and now they're mentioned that the surrounding cities that were filled with sexual immorality and perversion. These places, these examples show acts of rebellion and how walking in darkness will cause one to face the judgment of God. 
but he's also explaining to them that this is what a false brother looks like. This is what a false brother will face. The same judgment that faced unbelieving Israel, the same judgment that faced rebellious angels, the same judgment that faced Sodom and Gomorrah would be the same judgment that those who were predators in the family of faith will face. But Jude is also warning believers in here not to fall into the trap of, not, of, of trying to bring together Christian doctrine with pagan lifestyle because this is the fate that awaits them. In other words, the oxymoron, as we like to say, to be righteous and ratchet. We will face the same fate doing the same thing, that we are predators in the faith. I know some of us have t-shirts that say, I'm saved, but I cuss a little. Sanctification process, we got to work that out. But, but the idea that we cannot live with this pagan lifestyle and mixed Christian doctrine, that there's a fate that awaits us because what happens is, is that we're portraying to be somebody that we're not. But Jude doesn't stop there. He goes deeper. In verses 8 through 13, he talks about the ways of a predator. Jude 3, I'm sorry, 8 through 13, starting here, it says, In the same way these people... Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feast as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted." They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. Woo! Jude goes in. Look at the characteristics, though, of these false brethren, false sistren. Check this out. You just look at this. One, they claimed divine revelation. You know, the Lord told me to tell you. But it ain't nowhere in Scripture. You'll see that next point there. That they have a divine revelation. And that becomes their source of authority. Why? Because they reject the authority of biblical teaching. If, if, if their divine revelation over it trumps biblical teaching, that's something they can reject, then it leads to a third thing, that they end up defiling or polluting their bodies. These are characteristics. They claim divine revelation. They rejected the authority of biblical teaching. They rejected the authority of Scripture, and they defiled or polluted their bodies. But they also do another thing. They, they slander and blaspheme the glorious ones, otherwise known as angels. Now, check this out. So here, when we look at this text, there's a picture of two extremes. Irrationality and sinful rationality. On one end, they reflect an irrationality that is characteristics of animals who live only by their instincts. A wolf lives by their instincts. 
A predator lives by their instincts. Shark Week was on last week. If you ever see something about Shark Week, and I love Shark Week. I love watching animal shows. I love, like, the predator shows. I just like them. But one thing you know about sharks is they're, like, they got the smallest brains. As big as they are, they got the smallest brains. There's no rationality with a shark. You don't reason with a shark. They just feed. Why? Because when blood is in the water, their instincts take over. There's no reasoning with a wolf. When they smell prey, they go after it. So you have this, this irrationality of, on one end, but then you have a sinful rationality on the other. And it causes them to blaspheme what they don't understand. That there's a lot of room in charity within the Christian faith, a room for we see the Holy Spirit to work. And sometimes the Holy Spirit works outside of our reason, but we also know that he works within the confines of his word. But we'll blaspheme what they don't understand. But here we need to understand that, that the key is that, that these false brothers and sisters are predators who live by a fleshly instinct instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jude goes further. See, Jude dives in and uses other Old Testament examples, and, and what he does in doing so provides categories that show a way or a trajectory that these wolves have gone. He gives the way of Cain. He talks about the way of Cain. Now check this out. Way of Cain in, in Genesis chapter 4. He gives a bloodless offering and murders his brother. In other words, one thing that we can take away is that bad worship will lead to hatred, which leads to murder. But then he talks about Balaam, uh, as you see in, in Numbers chapters 22 through 24, and in verse 31 and 16, and Balaam ministered only for, for money and prophesied only for profit. In other words, being consumed by greed reflects a heart that is, unwilling, that is willing to exploit others and lead others to unfaithfulness in doing so. When you're motivated by greed, you're willing to trample on others. People become an ends to a, a means to an end, and it can lead others to unfaithfulness. But he doesn't stop there because he also talks about the men of Korah, which you read in number 16 that the men of Korah re rejected the authority of God's word, and they were known by their rebellion. So what happens is, is that rejecting the authority of God's word will lead to rebellion against God. It's important to know and to understand that these false brothers infiltrated the body of believers, the family of faith. And in doing so, they present a hidden danger that also overpromises and underdelivers. This is what he's saying in verses 12 and 13. When you look at verses 12 and 13, he talks about the idea of dangerous reefs at your love feast. A dangerous reef is, you think about a reef being under the water, and when ships would go, if they don't see the reefs, they run into the reefs, there's a hole in the boat, and now the boat ships, uh, sinks. That's what they're doing at love feasts. That they're eating amongst us without reverence of love of God and love of neighbor. That they are shepherds. Shepherds are called to sacrifice themselves for their sheep but they look out only for themselves. Imagine a shepherd whose job is to protect the sheep from the wolf. The wolf comes in, and the shepherd says, not my problem, I don't want to get bit. 
The shepherd goes in to protect the sheep. Believers, brothers and sisters in Christ should be looking out for one another, protecting one another from the predators. They are waterless clouds. That they go out, you go in a cloudy day like today, you look outside and you see the cloud, you're expecting rain. Why? Because you need it. Because in South Carolina, your grass is hot. And we pray for rain. I pray for rain a lot. Why? So I don't have to water grass. But on a cloudy day, and the refreshing rainwater should come and it doesn't come. It's over-promising with the clouds, but does not deliver with the rain. And then trees that should be blooming with fruit don't do any of that. That's another example of my own life. Because I see my backyard, we have these little plants and stuff. We try to do azaleas and all this good stuff. They only bloom once a year for like two weeks and then they're gone. I never said I had a green thumb. I don't. Praise the Lord for grace, though. And landscapers. So we see here in the text that Jude is presenting this warning to the believers that this is what a wolf looks like. This is what a predator looks like. And so to contend for the faith, as Jude 3 says, it means that we have to be on our guard to see when predators are in the midst. But also to understand that the ungodly will use their position and their placement to exploit others and to satisfy their own lusts. So we see already that we see that Jude begins with the judgment of a predator. He begins with the fate of the predator. Then he decides to talk about the ways of the predator, but then he goes back again and talks about the judgment and the fate of the predator. Verses 14 through 16, he says this. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. Now, before I'm going to take a parenthetical pause here as we talk about this text, because here Jude is using extra biblical resource, uh, sources in this passage when he talks about, talking about the prophecy of Enoch. And, and, and in some cases, some people reference it as a pop culture reference, that it was something that was recognized by the readers of the time. And I think this is a good segue for us to think about that, that we can use pop culture references. And we can use references outside of Scripture, extra-biblical resources outside of Scripture to assist, that's what I say here, to assist communicating divine truth. That it is not our primary source. It is to assist what Scripture has said. Going back now, though, uh, back to the text, notice here, though, that in verse 15, Jude uses the word ungodly four times just in this verse, four times. And he's driving a point then. He is driving a point to say that this is the judgment that these false brothers will face. Why? Because they're ungodly. Their heart's ungodly and their deeds are ungodly. The outcomes are ungodly. And they will face judgment for their ungodliness. That God will hold them accountable. 
But as we dig a little deeper, we talk about contending for the faith. We talk about the ways of the predator. We talk about the judgment of the predator. But how do we recognize a wolf? How do we know if there is a predator in our midst? Well, verse 16 helps us answer that question. He used the term like discontented grumblers, living according to their own desires, speak with arrogance, flatter others for their own advantage. In other words, they're all about them. They're all about themselves and seeking what they can gain for themselves. That there's a position of their heart that leads to how they treat others and how they engage and deal in worship. And so taking this back, it's, it's interesting here that we're sandwiching this text that, that, that Jude begins with judgment and then ends with judgment. It's interesting to see that he does this, and the reason why it's interesting is because he's driving home a point. He is reminding us that God will take care of these false brothers. A lot of times we think we got to be judge, jury, and executioner. But this text is to remind us that God's part is to exact the judgment that they deserve. That this is what God does. So what's our part then? How do we walk this thing out afterwards then? And I'm glad you asked. Our part is reflected in Jude 21. Now, Pastor Philip is going to land the plane next week, and, and I'm not try, I'm not, I don't want to steal any of his thunder. But it's important to, to, for us as a point of application here as we walk this text out. In verse 21, he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. This is how we should live. We should live in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the, love, for the mercy of our Lord Jesus. Why? For eternal life. This should inform how we treat and interact with others who may be caught in the trap. Going back to Little Red Riding Hood, you, you, you see that there are many variations, as I said, of the story. But one of the variations, it says that when she was being attacked, she cries out and there's a woodsman who is out in the woods who hears the cry of the little girl and intervenes. You see, he goes in, but he does not go in for the wolf. He goes in to go after for the little girl. He went for the little girl because the little girl was the one who was crying. Little Red Riding Hood was crying, and instead of going to attack the wolf, he goes to draw the girl out. The love of God and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ went in into the trap while we were stuck in the trap. That while we were yet sinners, he also went to the wood. He was a woodsman who was a carpenter who died on a cross, a wooden cross, that he, as the ultimate woodsman, goes in for us as we were stuck in the traps. The woodsman does the same thing. And as a result, because Jesus was the woodsman, because Jesus went for the ones caught in the trap, we are to do the same as his representatives. We got to get those who are caught in the grass of the wolf. Why? Because of the love of God and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this also serves as a reminder for us, and I'm about to land this plane, 
but it should also serve as a reminder for us that doctrine matters, truth matters. Why is that? Because if we get the gospel wrong, if we get the gospel wrong, we will not be able to live it out properly. You see, wrong belief will lead to wrong living, and the results can be and will be catastrophic. Let me say that again. Wrong belief will lead to wrong living, and the results can be and will be catastrophic. In other words, we have to be reminded not to drink the Kool-Aid. Notice I use those words. Not to drink. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Have you heard of that term? Have you heard of that term? But do you know where the term comes from? Do you know the context behind the story? Because the story sounds extreme, but it really happened. About 50 years ago, within a span of the last 50, maybe 60 years, there's a story of Jonestown. Ghana. Started off actually in San Francisco, California with a leader by the name of Jim Jones, who started out as a preacher, gathered a following, and the story ends in murder and a mass suicide where 900 people and 300 some odd children were killed, mostly by drinking a flavor aid, flavor aid laced with cyanide. Like, can you imagine a PR nightmare for Kool-Aid? Because Kool-Aid and Flavor-Aid ain't the same. But that's where the term don't drink the Kool-Aid came from. Wrong doctrine, wrong belief will lead to wrong living. And the results will be catastrophic. But there is something that we can take hold in and we can take hope in and we can really just grasp in our hearts is that the gospel is bigger than heresy. The truth of the gospel is bigger than the lies of heresy. How do I know that? Well, let's go back to the story of Little Red Riding Hood. See, it's one thing in the story that we know that is helpful is that Little Red Riding Hood may have never seen a wolf in her life. She may have never known what a wolf looked like. She may have never known what a wolf smelled like. She may have never known what a wolf talked like. But she knew her grandmother. And so when confronted with the wolf who disguised himself as his grandmother, she could say something was not right here. And all of a sudden she recognizes that you are not who you seem to be. All of us may not be experts in theology. We may not be systematic theologians or Christian ethicists or, or experts in doctrine, New Testament scholars and Old Testament scholars, historical theologians. But you could even be new to the faith. But if you know the Father and if you know the Son, you will know the truth. John 14, 6. I am the way, this is Jesus' word, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through me. If you know Jesus and you know the Father, you will know the truth. And when you know the truth, then you'll be able to recognize the lies 
that looks different from the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are who you say that you are. And that this warning here is to remind us of the truth of who you are as Lord and King, as the author of truth, the sustainer of our hope, the head of this family. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that we will be encouraged to know that the truth of the gospel is bigger than any lie that's out there. That you, God, are bigger than the wolf. You are better than the wolf. You are greater than the wolf. And you are the sustainer of all because of a cross and the empty tomb. We give you glory today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.